Our scripture passage this morning comes from Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Fathers, we think about Advent and the Christmas season and the gift of gifts. We're astounded, and if not, would you make us astounded by the fact that your son came, and he came as a man of sorrows. He came, and he didn't come in a world-like victory, riding on a victory horse. He came in on a donkey. He was persecuted. He was beaten crucified, publicly humiliated, dead for three days. But you raised him from the dead. He's a man of sorrows and he came to reclaim ruined sinners like us. God, would that truth, that basic truth that we are ruined sinners and you sent your son to reclaim us. Would it change everything about us? Would we live in light of that and apply that truth to all that we do? Father, our souls long for you. We hope in your word. Our eyes long for your promise. All your commandments are sure. Help us not to forsake your precepts, your steadfast love. Give us life that we may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Father, we pray for one of our missionary partners this morning, for Anand Samuel, as he preaches through 1 Corinthians and his church in Sharjah. Would you grow them through your word? Would you shape them into the image of Jesus? Would they be able to apply the truth of nothing but Christ and him crucified to all various areas of their church life? Would you build in that church a culture of discipleship? God, would you open a door so that they might meet in Sharjah again rather than having to drive 45 minutes to meet corporately? Would you open up the city? And as you do, would you bring renewal? And Father, we pray for the Dobbs v. Jackson case that the Supreme Court would overturn Roe v. Wade and that life would be preserved. Father, we ask for life, life eternal, but life here and now through your word. We cling to the promise that it will not return void, but it will accomplish that which you sent it for. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Amen. 
On August 6, 1930, Joseph Crater, who was a very successful New York Supreme Court judge, had dinner with some friends. He'd been to a show and he had dinner with some friends in Manhattan and he hopped in a cab and he was never seen again. Being a judge, obviously it was a hot topic, a very successful, well-known judge. Plus, you know, he had probably made a lot of people mad. People first suspected murder, but no evidence was ever found. Lots of theories, lots of speculation, nothing conclusive. The only piece of evidence was that he left a massive check for his wife in their apartment with a note that said, I am very weary, love Joe. I wonder if you can resonate. Are you weary today? If so, Jesus is going to invite us to find rest in our passage this morning. We continue to walk through the Gospel of Matthew. If you're using one of our Bibles there in the chairs, it's page 766. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one with you. And let's consider two points from Matthew chapter 11. First, a prayer of praise for sovereign grace. And then an invitation to the weary to come find rest. So a prayer of praise for sovereign grace in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father. For such was your gracious will. You know, as we've walked through the Gospel of Matthew together, we've seen Jesus get mixed responses, haven't we? He'll go to a place and some people warmly receive him and others reject him. We've seen that again and again. We will continue to see that again and again. We've seen that in our own life, right? Why is it, though, that some receive Jesus and others reject him? Why do some find these things puzzling and irrelevant, but others receive them as treasure? Jesus here says it's because the Father conceals and reveals. In fact, he doesn't only say it, he declares it. And it's a prayer of praise. He says, I thank you, Father and Lord, that you hide the things of the kingdom from the wise and learned, but you reveal them to children. God is the one who hides and reveals. And the, these things are the things that he's been teaching, the things of the kingdom. And Jesus here praises God for hiding the things of the kingdom from the wise and understanding. Of course, God's not opposed to wisdom and understanding. Read the Bible, read the whole book of Proverbs. Here, Jesus means those who are wise in their own eyes. Those who think they have nothing to learn. Those who think they're self-sufficient. But he reveals them to little children. Those are those who are humble. They desire to learn. They're childlike. Little children don't rely on their own resources. They're dependent. They're humble. They're not proud. You know, pride probably more than anything is what has kept people from the kingdom. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus says, whoever exalts self will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
Mary sings in her Magnificat that God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and he's exalted those of humble estate. That's what our God does. Proverbs 3, toward the scorners, God is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. And Jesus says, yes, Father, this is your gracious will. It was your good pleasure. It pleased you to do it this way. It's the Father's gracious will, Jesus says, to hide from some but reveal to others. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is utterly free, utterly unfrustrated, utterly undefeated and unthwarted. Ephesians 1.11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Jesus says, God, it pleased you to do it this way, and therefore it pleased Jesus. Jesus delighted in what God delighted in. And really what we're talking about here is the doctrine of election, God's sovereign choice. It's a very controversial doctrine, but we see it quite a bit. I often tell the membership class that just beware when the Bible speaks of predestination here at Southside. We speak into the microphone. We don't try to hide it because some form of the word predestined or elect actually occurs 50, 5 zero. 50 times in the New Testament. And so where Jesus talks about it, we want to talk about it. Salvation is of the Lord. God is sovereign in all things, including our salvation. Redemption is truly, freely given. Truly unearned, unachieved. We have nothing that we did not receive, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Now, oftentimes this doctrine is misrepresented, mischaracterized. In fact, just recently, a couple weeks ago, I heard about um, a seminary professor. Uh, He's got a PhD in theology. He should know better. Uh, Coming out of Southwestern down the road. And he he gave this example. He brought a couple of people up on the stage and uh, had them reach up. And so there's people on the stage reaching up. And he said, here's those who believe in predestination, which by the way, if you're a Christian, you've got to believe something in in about predestination because it's in the Bible, right? It's in there, so we've got to do something with it. But anyway, he had these people reaching up, and he goes, here's, here's what they teach. They teach that there's people reaching up, and God says, you can come in, you can't. And listen, friends, if that was the case, it would be a really nasty doctrine, but that's just not the case. We've got to understand our Bible. We've got to understand what the Bible teaches about sin. The biblical portrait is not that we're trying to get in. It's quite the opposite. The Bible says we're dead in sin. The Bible says we were hostile to God. The Bible says before we came to Christ, we were enemies of God. So the picture's not, let me in. The picture's, I want nothing to do with you. And we're running the opposite direction. Blind and dead and angry about it. And God in his grace says, I'm not going to allow you to go that route. I've recently, you know, I grew up here. And I wasn't a Christian growing up and became a Christian after high school. And so it's interesting when I bump into people from high school and and I just bumped into a a friend of a friend, best friend. I've got a couple really good friends that I was just like, and I should be where they are. Well, this one, we were were tied at the hip for years and years and years and years and said, how's he doing? I became a Christian. He kind of cut me off. And uh, well, he's, he's just got out of prison and he's in trouble again on drugs. And I come away burdened for him but also just thankful for grace because I was running with him away from the Lord and it's only his kindness that drew me back. I didn't want in before Christ, neither did you. And Jesus says that, John chapter six, verse 44. No one can come to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. We don't even have the ability left to ourselves because we're hardened and blind apart from the grace of God. And Jesus is thankful for it, that God conceals from some, but he reveals to others. Romans chapter 9 is probably the clearest passage. He doesn't use the language there of concealing and revealing, but he uses the language of showing mercy and hardening. Again, not very popular chapter of the Bible, but if you know yourself and you know your sin and you know that you have no hope without the sovereign grace of God, this is a warm blanket. Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? If this is true, if God is sovereign, is there injustice on God's part? Is he unfair? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion. I like the way the King James puts it. It's not dependent on him who wills or him who runs but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You'll say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. What Jesus is teaching us here, Paul agrees, is that God's love truly is unconditional. In other words, not conditioned upon us. J.I. Packer says the doctrine of predestination resolves three vital questions for us. First, how is it that I'm a Christian today? Well, because God chose me before the foundation of the world. Second, what confidence can I have of getting to heaven? Every confidence, because God promises to keep us and he will finish what he started. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified the resurrection. That's future tense. But for those whom he predestined, it's already a done deal. It's a guarantee. God's going to finish what he started. Third question, what do I have to thank God for? Everything. Our entire Christian life. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Again, this isn't me. This is Jesus. And what does he do? He thanks God for his sovereignty. He thanks God. I thank you, Father, for hiding from some and revealing to others. This is so countercultural, isn't it? Because really what Jesus is doing here is he's thanking God that his ministry will be at least partially a failure. Thank you, God, that you're hiding it from a lot of people. Thank you, God, that a lot of people aren't going to get it. It's a prayer of praise. Jesus thanking God for his sovereign choice. What would Jesus do? 
Jesus would be grateful for predestination. I wonder how you respond to this doctrine. Jesus offers a prayer of praise. Do you? When sovereign choice, when election comes to Jesus' mind, he responds with thanksgiving. He responds with gratitude. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, with thanksgiving is the only right way to think about election. And so we should be thankful like Jesus for God's sovereign grace. And Paul agrees. Paul lays out in Ephesians chapter one, he starts speaking of every spiritual blessing. I wonder, think for a moment, think about some spiritual blessings that God has given us in Christ. I wonder what the first one that comes to mind is, maybe the second one that comes to mind, third one that comes to mind. For the apostle Paul who agrees with Jesus, the first blessing that comes to mind is election. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's the first one he says. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It's the first thing that comes to mind when it comes to what should we praise God for because Paul knows that if that hadn't happened, he wouldn't be there praising God in the first place. This doctrine shouldn't be a matter of, of polemics, but praise. Not controversy, but comfort. Not of debate, but delights. That he conceals from some and he reveals to others. He reveals to the little children. So the question before us this morning is, how can we know that we're little children? To whom these things have been revealed and not hidden? Well, the question, have you come? Have you come to Christ? Have you realized you are not self-sufficient? realized you need a savior and come in faith to Christ, well, then you are a little child. Jesus says this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What a promise. What a promise to live by. Look at verse 27, Matthew chapter 11. Jesus continues, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So the Father's handed all over to the Son. Notice this Trinitarian language. The Bible's Trinitarian through and through. We have the Father planning, the Son redeeming, and the Spirit applying. And we see it here. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And he says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and whoever the Son chooses to reveal himself to. No one can know God apart from Jesus. Very unpopular opinion today, but friends, we just have to be honest, and we have to be bold and clear yet humble that the Christian faith is exclusive. No one knows the Father except through the Son. Jesus said that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. We didn't make it up. It's him who said it. Acts 4.12, there's salvation and no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To know the Lord, you must know Jesus. He says that again and again and again. Only Christians know God. Only Christians can know God. And that's no reason to be boastful or self-righteous, we've just seen that the only reason we know is because it's been revealed to us 
I love how the Apostle Paul's in Galatians 4 and he's writing and he says, now that you come to know God, and he has to like, stop, wait a minute, that sounds a little bit too man-centered. Let me, let me reel that back a little bit. Rather, to be known by God, because that's where the accent should lie. The only ones who come to know God are those the Son has chosen to reveal him to. He's going to say a little bit later in Matthew chapter 22, 14, many are called, few are chosen. And so this should lead us to humble praise. And it should compel us to go make the name of Jesus known. No one knows the Father except through the Son. By the way, just zoom out a little bit. This is sort of normal for us. But think about how audacious these words are if Jesus isn't divine. You know, everyone loves Jesus. It's really rare to find anyone talking bad about Jesus. But those who deny his deity will say, well, he was just a good, wise human teacher. Is this wise teaching? He's saying, no one knows the Father except through me. No one knows God except those I reveal myself. No, that's not wise human teaching either. He's nuts or he's telling the truth. Either he's lying and making this stuff up or he's telling the truth. And if he's telling the truth, his words must be reckoned with. So prayer of praise for sovereign grace. Second, an invitation to the weary to come find rest. Look at Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus continues, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Notice this universal invitation, come all. Wait a minute. Didn't just say that no one can know God unless the Son chooses to reveal that to them. Is God sovereign or are we responsible? Yes. The Bible teaches both. And we must affirm both. God is absolutely sovereign and we are absolutely responsible. If you can't get that straight in your mind, that's all right. There's a bit of mystery here, but to be biblical, we must affirm both. All are invited. Now, we know that the Son chooses to reveal, only those who the Son chooses to reveal himself to will come. Many are called, few are chosen. We know that, but the invitation's there. Once heard an illustration, I think it was R.C. Sproul, I can't remember, but the illustration was really helpful. It was as if there's this big cross and there's the invitation to come to the Lord, come all. And so you come. And you walk through the cross and you become saved and you look back. And on the other side of that cross was Ephesians 1.4, chosen before the foundation of the world. We realize that we wouldn't have come if we hadn't been chosen. We seek him because as we sing, Jesus sought me when a stranger. We have faith and we must and then we realize even that faith was a gift of God, Ephesians 2.9. So the Christian message is exclusive, but it's inclusive of any who come. All are invited. And what a glorious invitation that is. What, what's the invitation to? Or better, who's the invitation to? Jesus says, come to me. This invitation is for everyone underneath the sound of my voice. Jesus, Jesus says, come to me, the Messiah, the King. The Lord, he invites us to him. He has open arms. 
But notice it's really only a certain kind of person that's going to come. It's, it's the beat down. Are you fatigued? Are you, as Joe Crater, very weary, overwhelmed? Has life become a grind? Are your biscuits overcooked? You stretch thin, burdened, then you're qualified to come. This invitation is for you, to all who labor and are heavy laden, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, Jesus' invitation is for you. I love the old hymn written in 1759, come, listen to this invitation, come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Don't wait and dream of becoming fit. It'll never happen. Nor of fitness fondly dream. The only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. This is the prerequisite from Christianity. If you're here and you think you're fine, the invitation's not for you. I was talking to Karen here a while ago about a friend of hers. She had went to, she had visited church and came home and the lady didn't know the Lord. And the, the lady's question to her when she returned from church was, uh, do you feel virtuous? It's exactly the wrong question. We're here because we lack virtue. Psalm 145, the Lord upholds who? Who does the Lord uphold? Those who are strong and self-sufficient? No, those who are falling. And he raises up all who are bowed down. Who is it the Lord dwells with? Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what's the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, the strong and self-sufficient who has it all together. No, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Jeremiah 31, 25, I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. See, we naturally, we think that this invitation is for the holy, for the polished, for the learned, for those that are all together, all put together. Wrong. Jesus does not invite the healthy. He invites the sick. He doesn't invite the scribes and Pharisees. He invites the tax collectors and the sinners. God is concealed from the wise in their own eyes, but revealed to the childlike. That's who this kingdom is for. It's been a little while, but do you remember how this started in Matthew chapter 5 with what we know as the Beatitudes? Again, they're normal to us, but this is not what you would think the kingdom was going to look like. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are who? The rich? No, the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. They're needy for righteousness, 
for they shall be satisfied. It's a kingdom of misfits. It's the upside down kingdom. It's the kingdom that is reserved for the inadequate and the incompetent. If that's you, Jesus invites you. Calvin said, failure makes us fit to receive his grace. There's so many that get Christianity wrong as if it's for the virtuous. They confuse Christianity for moralism, for be goodism. But Christianity is not for the put together, but for the burden. That's who Jesus invites. And what does he offer? He invites the worked over and the burden to come and find rest. He says it twice in this passage, I will give you rest for your souls. And then he says, you will find rest. Well, what is rest? This is the rest he's talking about. In some ways, it's what we were meant to be living in the entire time. In some ways, it's been the goal from the very beginning. You remember when we went through Genesis chapter 1, you have those days of creation. There's seven days of creation, and there's a formula to close the day, every one. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. There was evening, and there was morning. Second day, third day, God did all this. There was evening, there was morning. Third day, God did this, this, and this on the fourth day. It was evening, morning, fourth day. Until you get to the seventh day, God finishes and he rests from his work. And it's not a rest from exhaustion, it's a rest from completion. The idea that is being communicated, it was this open-endedness that we were meant to live in. We were meant to live with rest with God. The seventh day was to go on forever. It didn't though, did it? Genesis chapter 3. We decided we knew better than God, Adam and Eve, and so we lost rest. And so in some ways you could describe the rest of the story of the Bible as finding rest. You have the nation of Israel growing and they go into the promised land and Joshua eleven twenty three says the land had rest. And then there's rest promised, there's rest commanded, the Sabbath commandments. But all these things actually just pointed forward to a new rest, a true rest that would be secured by a new Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. He is our rest. That's like Colossians 2 puts it. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That rest just points forward to, as we will say, see next week in Matthew chapter 12, the Lord of the Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 4 puts it this way. If Joshua, back in the promised land, if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on because, again, that rest just pointed forward. He speaks of another rest later on in Psalm 95. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There it is. Rest is rest in Christ, and it's a resting from your self-salvation project. Rest is salvation by grace through faith. It's ceasing from your works. It's spiritual refreshment. It's salvation. It's the joy of the Lord. It's rest at the deepest level. It's not rest for the body necessarily. It's rest for the soul. It's not rest from any and all demand either. Look at verse 29, Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus invites the weary to take up his yoke 
What's a yoke? I think we've got a picture for you. There you go. You know what a yoke is. Tool for oxen to help with the plow. Jesus speaks of his yoke. Jews would often speak of the yoke of the law, the yoke of the Torah. Jesus has already went up on the mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, as this new Moses delivering his law, the Sermon on the Mount, his yoke. Some people think that Jesus removes the yoke altogether. To add a yoke to the heavy laden is to add affliction to the afflicted, isn't it? Jesus, though, says, take my yoke, not come lay on my mattress. There's, there's demand, there's work, but Jesus' offering is a, a, way, a new way, a new kind of work, a new way to live, a new way to operate and find life. His yoke is the call to follow him. Notice that connection, take my yoke and learn from me. And he says, learn from me, not just about me, learn me and learn from me. He's the curriculum and the teacher. The Greek root for learn and yoke is the same. Learn and disciple is the same. Come, follow me, you will find rest for, because I am gentle and lowly in heart, meek, humble in heart. And remember that in the Bible, the heart is really the causal core of the personality. It's the motivational headquarters. It's, it's all the shebang. It's not just how we feel. It's how we think and feel and reason. It's the mind, will, and emotions. And Jesus says about the core of his personality, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You know, if you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, it's about 89 chapters. A lot of, it's a lot of teaching. And only here does Jesus reveal his heart. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And there are so many things that he could have said, right? So many true things. What is it that it is his core? I am serious in heart. Holy, austere, uncompromising, demanding, strict. But he says gentle in heart. Now we saw just last week, Cody walked us through Matthew eleven twenty 20 to 24, where Jesus harshly rebukes these cities that are unrepentant. Woe to you. It would have been better for Sodom than for you. And so he's not gentle and lonely with everyone. He's not gentle and lowly at all, not to those who won't repent, not to the impenitent. He's fierce toward those who remain opposed to him, but toward his own, gentle. Means meek, humble. He's not harsh. He's not short-fused. He's not easily irritated. He's not easily exasperated. He doesn't stand with a pointed finger, but with open arms. Not only gentle, but lowly in heart. This word overlaps with gentle and humble as well. Very similar words. He uses this lowly word in Romans chapter 12. Paul uses it to speak of the socially unimpressive. Do not be haughty, but associate with a lowly. Jesus is accessible, he's approachable, he doesn't snub his nose toward us, even at our weakest, he doesn't roll his eyes towards us, he doesn't hold his nose as we approach him. Thomas Goodwin says, Jesus does not have a severe and sour disposition toward us sinners. No qualifications besides knowing you're unqualified. 
No hoops to jump through, no long lines, no tests to pass, no tickets required, no security to get through. All you need is need. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. His yoke is easy. It's translated kindness elsewhere. His yoke is kind. His yoke is a non-yoke in essence. It's like asking a drowning man to bear the burden of the lifesaver you're throwing to him. Jesus makes his commands a delight in two ways. First, because it's finished. And second, because his way is the path to flourishing. His yoke is kind because his finished work on the cross. We serve Jesus. We take on his yoke, not in order to gain his love, but because we already have it by faith. We're not working for a position. We're working from a position of forgiveness. I wonder if you get that this morning. I think oftentimes we think the good news, good news you know, we, we gain a right standing and we think that we keep a right standing by how well we're doing. That's burdensome. Jesus here says, my yoke is easy. The gospel makes his yoke easy. Unlike the religious leaders that Jesus is opposing in every chapter of the gospels. Jesus offers rest for the burdens, but what are the religious leaders doing? They're doing the very opposite. A little bit later in Matthew chapter 23, it's one of Jesus' harshest chapters where he's going after the religious leaders. And notice he uses the same word here. He says, they tie up heavy burdens, same word, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Listen to the way Peter put it, speaking to the Jews again, who had this tendency to put on heavy yokes and burdens by saying that we've got to be obedient to gain God's favor. It says this in Acts 15 verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. His yoke is kind because of grace. So if you're spiritually exhausted, you're on the brink of burnout, heavy laden, maybe because you're not laboring from the gospel. It's really helpful to ask, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I serving in this way? What's your motive? Are you trying to earn God's love and God's favor? By you? Well, of course you're going to be burdened. But when we get the gospel, we get grace that God saves sinners by faith and faith alone. And there is therefore now no condemnation. And when God looks upon us, even on our worst day, he doesn't see us, but he sees Jesus Christ in whom he's well pleased. We can labor hard, be physically exhausted, but spiritually refreshed. So you may need to get rid of the yoke of legalism and put on the yoke of Jesus. His burden is light, his yoke is easy because of the finished work of Jesus. Second, reading his burden is light is because his way is actually the path to life. It's the way to flourish. His commands are an invitation to joy. I wonder if you look at the commands of the Bible that way. It's easy to think, well, God just not wanting us to do certain things. No, no. His commands are an invitation to a better life. 
When God says, don't do this, it's because he's got a better way. He's not a killjoy. He's the fountain of joy. Don't look to broken cisterns when the fountain of living water is available. His yoke is kind. It's easy. It's where rest is found. And so we can paradoxically say with the poet, make me captive, Lord, and then I'll be free. True freedom is wearing the yoke of Jesus. A bird's not free when it tries to lose the weight of her wings. Fish is not free when it wants out of the tank. A tree is not free when it's cut from the roots. Jesus offers a new kind of yoke that makes the burden light. So some of you need to come to Christ and find rest. Some of you who profess faith in Christ but are burdened, you need to, maybe it's that you need to put the yoke on. Maybe you've become like Jesus taught last week, Cody mentioned last week, that these people that didn't sing, play a flute or sing a dirt, they're just apathetic. They're just apathetic about the things of God. Well, of course you're going to be burdened. You're not living the way you're supposed to live. You're supposed to live for him. If you're living for yourself, you're going to be tired and burned out. If you're living for the Lord, you're going to be refreshed and rested. I love this prayer from St. Augustine, 4th century. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Dear friend, your heart will remain restless until it finds rest in Christ. Christ is all you need. He's the bread of life where the hungry find nourishment. He's the door. He's the only way to the Father. He's the great physician where the sick find healing. He's the truly wise one whose words are life. He's the light of the world making our path straight in a world of darkness. He's the fountain of life in the dry desert. He's the lily of the valley, the bright morning star. Look to him and find rest for your soul. Pray with me. Father, how grateful we are and how grateful we should be for the words of Jesus, the fact that we have them, and the fact that he shows us how we ought to posture ourselves when it comes to your sovereignty. We ought to be grateful and thankful that you've made us like little children. We realize that even the knowledge of our own sin, the knowledge of our own brokenness, being poor in spirit, being contrite doesn't come from us. It comes from your spirit who convicts us and shows us that we are ruined sinners. I pray for that work to increasingly happen in this body of people. And we're thankful for the invitation to find life. The invitation, I pray for those who don't know you, that they would see that their life will remain restless until they find their rest in you. I pray for those who do know you but have the wrong yoke on. Don't understand your grace and don't understand that we're called to serve you and we're called to deny self, not so that we might gain your love, but because you've already lavishly poured out your love upon us and now we get to respond, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude and gladness. May we increasingly find rest in Christ for our souls. We pray it in his name. Amen.